Good morning, everyone. The scripture reading for today's sermon is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. If you want to read along, it's in your bulletin. And they sent him, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. As you guys can see, we are resuming our series and journey through the Gospel of Mark. It's a journey that we started earlier this year, and then uh, during the summer, we took a bit of a break. Uh, But we're back on it, and we'll continue until uh, Advent series, Um, and then we'll resume again starting in January. Well, you know it's voting season when you go to the mailbox and you discover that your mail has quadrupled in size. All of us are bombarded with flyers and ads of politicians to vote for, propositions to vote down. And this season is particularly exciting for our church since one of our own church members, Branda Lynn, is running for mayor. Of course, this brings up the question of how the church ought to relate to the state. How does our faith intersect with our politics? Unfortunately, history doesn't really help us much. There are those who, in the name of Christ, have felt that following Jesus means disengaging from the state, withdrawing from society, living in your own communes or monasteries. I think of the Amish as a modern example. And then there are those who, in the name of Jesus, believed that the best way to be faithful to him is to collapse the church with the state, to Christianize the government so that they're one and the same. And of course, I'm thinking of the Middle Ages. I'm thinking of the Crusades. Uh, A more recent example of this type of ideology was witnessed on January 6, uh, 2021. Uh, You might have seen some rioters storming the Capitol, waving Christian flags, singing Christian hymns. So what are we to do? How does God call the church to relate to government? Does God call us to Christianize the state? How does our identity as citizens of heaven intersect with our identity as citizens of this world? Well, that's why I'm thankful for today's scripture reading. 
Because here Jesus lays the foundation for how the church ought to intersect with the state. And it's crucial that we gain clarity on this because if we're confused on this issue, as we've seen in the past, it could lead to devastating results. Now, before we get into what Jesus says in verse 17, let's first look at the context of our passage and see how it comes about. Verse 13 begins with, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, for the first century reader, this verse would have raised some eyebrows. Why? Because normally you wouldn't see Pharisees and Herodians in the same sentence because you won't see them in the same room. You see, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day who believed that Israel's prosperity, Israel's well-being was tied to their faithfulness to God, their obedience to the Torah. And so for them, the path forward was remaining pure and not allowing the external pagan culture to invade their faith. That was the Pharisees. Herodians, on on the other hand, were on the opposite spectrum. For them, they didn't pay much attention to the Torah. They didn't pay much attention to what God said. Instead, they were all about maintaining and cultivating political power. And so as their name suggests, they were supporters of Herod. Who was Herod? Herod was the Jewish king that Rome set up to rule over that area. Now, the Jews could see through and past Herod and saw him as a puppet of Rome. And so the zealots, the Pharisees, didn't care much about Herod. And so you have these two opposing factions with competing ideologies, and yet in verse 13, they conspire together, they work together. Why? Because they have a common enemy, Jesus. As the saying goes, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. You have unlikely allies. And so they come up with what they believe is an airtight trap for Jesus. Before they release this trap, however, they try to grease the wheels through flattery. In verse 14, it reads, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're stroking Jesus' ego and saying, Jesus, we we always appreciate how you don't care about what other people think. You just stick to the truth. It's their way of loosening Jesus' lips. To the question we're about to ask you, we just want you to answer without thinking about the consequences. If they were in a bar, they'd probably give Jesus a few drinks. And what is their trap? Well, they ask in verse 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, I want you to know that this question about paying taxes to Caesar was a political landmine. 
It was the hot button issue of Jesus' day. What was the big deal? What the tax they're talking about here is known as the poll tax. The Roman Empire levied it on every adult male, required every adult male to pay a denarius to Rome once a year. How much is a denarius? It was about a day's wage. Now, you're probably thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's only a day's wage. I pay a lot more in taxes to my government. Well, you see, the Jews hated and despised this tax, not so much because of the amount, but because of what it symbolized. It was a perpetual reminder that the Jews were under subjugation, that they were not a free people, but a conquered people. What is more, this poll tax funded Rome's armies, the very armies and soldiers that were occupying Jerusalem at that time. They hated this tax so much that in 6 AD, when it was first instituted by Rome, there was a revolt of Jews against the empire, which led to the mass murder of this revolt. And then a generation later, in 66 AD, another revolt occurred, which was squashed yet again. So this tells you just how much they bristled against this tax. So what do you think would have happened if Jesus answered in the affirmative, yes, pay the tax? Jesus would have lost all of his followers all those who waved palm branches just a few days earlier in the triumphal entry, all those who believed Jesus to be the Messiah would have turned their backs on Jesus and said, we thought you were pro-Israel. We were wrong. On the other hand, what do you think would have happened if Jesus answered in the negative? If he said, don't pay your taxes, then you know the Herodians would have made a beeline to the Roman delegates, and that Jesus would be arrested for treason, for instigating a rebellion and executed. And so that was the dilemma of this trap. Say yes, and you, use your, you lose your popularity. Say no, and you lose your life. This was a catch-22 situation, a tails I win, heads you lose. So what does Jesus do? We ask someone to take out a denarius, and he says, whose inscription is on this coin? The answer is Caesar. Uh, If we had our projectors, you would have seen a picture of this coin. You have the image of Caesar with the inscription that reads, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin, it read, High Priest. And so this coin not only uh, declares that Caesar is their leader, but also Caesar is their God. After showing Caesar's image, Jesus then says in verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Since Caesar's image is emblazoned on this coin, clearly this coin belongs to him. So give back to Caesar what is already his, is Jesus' rationale. At the same time, 
we must also obey and submit to the Lord and give to him what belongs to him. And with that answer, like a mouse that gets away with the cheese, Jesus evades their trap. He eludes their trap because he doesn't see the issue through a binary lens of yes and no. He gives a both and answer. And so for all their hatred of Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees leave marveling at Jesus' brilliance. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to unpack Jesus' words, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Because in these words, you have the foundation of how the church ought to relate to the state. And I'm going to make three points for you. Point number one, by saying to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus is legitimizing earthly governments. He's legitimizing governmental authority. Human governments as an institution is a legitimate enterprise. They are good and necessary gifts from God given to us for mankind's flourishing and protection. In most situations, having a government is better than total anarchy. Just read The Lord of the Flies as an example of that. Having a police force, having a military to protect you from evil and wickedness is good. Just ask the Ukrainians right now. Now, I understand that for many of us here, associating authority with good is a difficult pill to swallow. Why? Because we're Americans. America was founded upon a rebellion, rebellion against tyranny. My family and I visited the birthplace of the revolution in Boston uh, earlier this year. We visited the site of the Boston Tea Party. We reenacted throwing bales of tea into the sea. We're Americans. And so we distrust authority. And it doesn't help that for over, a hundred of year, for over a hundred years, our government legalized and enforced the, American, the African slave trade. And so you and I can account uh, injustice after injustice of how our country has failed us. And so to think that government is good, it's, it's difficult for us. But I want to respond and say that if you think America is bad, Rome was far worse. The Roman Empire was built on oppression, colonization, and enslavement. They became an empire not through negotiation, but through subjugation. This is the very government that would, in three days, accuse and condemn Jesus to death by crucifixion. This is the same empire that would virtually murder all of Jesus' apostles. This is the same empire that will categorically round up Christians and feed them to the lions in the Colosseum. To this government, Jesus says, pay your taxes. 
for all of their abuse, it's still a legitimate authority. The Apostle Paul further unpacks this principle in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul is saying we obey them not because they are Christian. He's telling us that the legitimacy of governmental authority does not depend on how faithful they are to Scripture, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Rather, their authority comes from the fact that they are in authority, that God, our sovereign king, has instituted them to rule in this time and space. And because we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe that they've been appointed by God. This is why the Bible calls us to pray for our leaders. This is why we pray for President Trump when he was in office. This is why we pray for President Biden, who is in office now. The legitimacy of authority does not depend on how Christian that authority is. Now, does this mean that as Christians, we passively submit and embrace every action of those ruling over us? Of course not. We lawfully protest when we see injustice. We lawfully try to make changes so that the government will reflect virtue and morality and righteousness. But we do not use the name of Jesus as an excuse to justify delinquent behavior. We do not use the name of Christ as an excuse to diminish or abandon our civic responsibility. No, the Bible wants us to be good, law-abiding citizens wherever we are. Point number two, Jesus' words show us that Christianity has gone global. It's gone global. The moment that Jesus legitimized a pagan empire is the moment, to borrow Mark Dever's words, is the moment where he unhitches the wagon of God's kingdom from any geopolitical entity. Jesus is unhitching the wagon of God's kingdom from any geopolitical entity. This is important because for hundreds of years under the old covenant, God would identify his kingdom with the specific nation, and that was Israel. But here, under the new covenant, we see that God's kingdom is no longer identified with an earthly kingdom. Jesus would go out of his way to say, my kingdom is not of this world. And so what does this mean? It means that Christian nationalism is an oxymoron. It's unbiblical. It means that there's no such thing as a Christian America. Just because our country may be founded on Judeo-Christian values 
doesn't mean that we are a Christian nation or that we ever should be a Christian nation. And it's not just Americans who make this mistake. We've seen this mistake repeated throughout Europe. I've actually seen it in the Korean immigrant church. Because of the explosion of Christianity in Korea, I've heard pastors declare that Korea is now the new Israel of God and that through Korea, God is going to be a blessing to all the world. We must never identify the gospel or the church with any political nation or any political party. Let me repeat that again. We must never identify the gospel or the church with any political nation or any political party. God's kingdom is not bound by geography or ethnicity. It's not accomplished either through political means. It's accomplished rather through the declaration and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church. If history has taught us anything, it's this. When human governments interfere with the church's mission, it distorts the power of the gospel. It diminishes the gospel's power. If anything, history has taught us that when human governments are antagonistic against the gospel, the witness and power of that gospel is magnified and multiplied. Just look at the explosion of Christianity in China. Look at the explosion of the underground church in Iran. History has proven that the gospel does not need any help from political agents. It is the power of God to save. Again, as Mark Dever would say, Christians are like cockroaches. We survive and thrive anywhere, anytime, any regime. Pastor Tim Keller was once asked if we should change the definition of evangelical. Some of you may know that the word or adjective evangelical is thrown around and used all over the place in today's culture, so much so that most people associate evangelical with a political party. I love Keller's response. He says, why are you asking me if we should change the name evangelical? I'm a white American. Don't you understand that the evangelical church is no longer American? That 90% of evangelical Christianity is un-American, is not American. That the majority of evangelicals in the world are non-white. So who am I to change the name of evangelical when it is not my term? I love that. And it shows the international appeal and impact of the gospel. God is gathering people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I understand we have a lot of international students here. And some of you may have immigrated here recently. 
Well, I want to let you know that Christianity is not an American religion. I want you to know that you don't have to be an American to be a Christian. Jesus invites you, regardless of where you came from, regardless of where your earthly citizenship may be, Jesus invites you to be his follower. The gospel has gone global. Point number three. In Jesus' words, we see that God trumps Caesar. The state does not have absolute authority. See, I I love what Jesus cleverly does. He pulls out this coin that declares that Caesar is God. But then he adds, and give to God what belongs to God. He uses Caesar and then refers to God to show that Caesar is not God. That there is another who clearly is. That regardless of what a coin might say, what a song might say, what politicians might say, or an earthly government might say, Caesar is not God, only God is. Though it is true that government authority is a gift from God, that gift, that authority can be abused and misused. And in times when the government demands something of us that defies and contradicts what God commands, we must always submit to the Lord. And we've seen this in the scriptures. Daniel and his friends were commanded to bow and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. They refused and as a result were imprisoned. We see this in the book of Acts. uh, Peter and John are commanded to stop evangelizing, to stop talking about this Jesus. As a result, they were sent to prison. And when they were asked why they continue to ignore this order, they say in chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And so don't confuse what Jesus is saying here. It's one thing to obey the state. It's another to worship the state. They're not one the same, one and the same. The state has some authority over us, but not absolute authority. Now, this point naturally resonates for those of us who see a lot of things wrong with those who are in authority over us. We're like, yes. I only obey God, right? Kind of stick it to them. But as you cheer for this point, I hope you realize how sobering this point is. You see, when Jesus pointed at Caesar's image, he was saying, because this coin bears the image of Caesar, it belongs to who? Caesar. The opening pages of the Bible declare that when God created man, he created man in his own image. What does that mean? It means that you and I were never meant to be autonomous beings. We were never meant to rule ourselves and be our own kings. I think of the movie Toy Story. 
Woody, for the longest time, is trying to figure out who he is. He's trying to figure out his purpose until he looks at the bottom of his shoe and sees the words inscribed, Andy. And then the light bulb goes on. Ah, that is who I am. I belong to Andy. That's my purpose. In the same way, God imprinted his name on our souls. We were created in his image. It's God's way of showing to us what our purpose is. We were created for him and for his glory. We owe him our allegiance. And so if we owe some coins to Caesar because it bears his image, then we owe God our lives because our lives bear the image of God. God is our king. The great lie of sin and Satan is that we can be our own God. So let me ask, dear friends, if someone were to watch a video of your life this past week, would they be able to walk away and conclude that God is your king, that you lived for his glory according to his will and purposes for his pleasure? I think if we're honest, we would say, No, probably not. As Pastor Lewis mentioned earlier in the service, it's a lot easier to sing, He is Lord of all. It's much harder to live, He is Lord of all. One thing I've noticed about myself is my ear is tuned to certain words. Uh, What I mean is if I'm in a crowd of people, and I'm talking with someone, and there are all these other conversations around me. Take, for example, what happens after service on Sunday. Uh, If I hear someone mention God, I'll, I'll hear it. I'll be like, sweet, they're talking about God. But if I hear someone mention my name, all of a sudden, it's hard for me to focus on my conversation, and I find myself listening in. I'm so concerned about my name. You see, because of sin, all of us, instead of living for him, our default is to live for ourselves. Instead of lifting up his name, our default is to lift up and be concerned about our name. But here's the good news of our king. Though we rebel against him, Though we defy him, though we deny him, though we squash him, he does not banish us. He does not cast us away. Instead, in love, he sent his only begotten son to chase after us, rescue us, and to do whatever it took to redeem us, even if it meant death on a cross. Our king became a servant so that we might become co-heirs with him. And that is the gospel. This is the message that is going around this world claiming millions of lives. 
This is the message that is winning hearts over, whether they be in the jungles of Brazil, in the dusty streets of Pakistan, or in the basements of China. This gospel is reaching people all over the world, just as it has reached us. And this is the power of God, not any human institution or party. And that is our hope. And that is what we at New Life here strive to do every Sunday, is to hold up this power of the gospel, proclaim it, get out of the way, and see it work. And that has been the joy and privilege for all of us here who have called New Life home. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess to you that it is so tempting for us to cast you into our image, to take this gift of salvation you've given us and to distort it and make it serve our means. And Lord, we've seen how mankind has muddied your image by bringing it into the political realm and misusing and abusing your name. Um, for earthly agendas, Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to ultimately give to you what belongs to you. We pray, O Lord, that your gospel would continue to win over souls all over the world and that it would continue to win our hearts in degree and in extent. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you for these uh, precious words and may it give us clarity during a time where clarity is needed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.